I think you have to be a naive dreamer to think that you can create something new from nothing. The most important thing is set out your company mission, your company vision, your culture, and your product vision. Really establish who you are, what you want to be, where you want to go, so that everyone is on the same page about that. The traditional view of a manager is someone who is making technical decisions, making architectural decisions, making like hiring and firing and you know, HR stuff, and also is responsible for the people stuff. The value of product management is in some ways validating that there's a need or a market for something before you do the work to building it. Hi, I'm Paul Berger, founder of CircleCI. I'm Edith Harba, CEO and co-founder at LaunchDarkly. And you're listening to To Be Continuous, a podcast about continuous delivery and software development. You can get in touch with us anytime at our Twitter handle, at ContinuousCast. The show is brought to you by Heavybit. To learn more, visit heavybit.com. And while you're there, check out their library, home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders. All right, so this week we're talking about scaling. Yeah, I mean, we started to talk about this last week. Um, we talked about uh, specialization versus scaling. Mm-hmm. Versus generalization? Okay, so specifically the scaling that we're talking about is like organizational scaling rather than or team scaling, perhaps not not infrastructure scaling. Correct. Yeah. Though I think they go along. I think there's two big sins, which are premature scaling and uh, waiting too late to scale, and they kind of go hand in hand. You, right, you right. Can, they, yeah, you can say the same for organizations as for. Well, I mean, yeah. I, I think I've seen the mistake of um, there's startups that have raised a lot of money and have acted like they already made it. Was it you that wrote a scathing blog post about lasers? No, famous. 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 Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. It wasn't scathing. It was meant to be kind, but it's basically, like you, you can have a hubris when you raise twenty to thirty million and mm-hmm. think that you have already made it. Right. Yeah. I remember meeting their their head of something at a heavy bit function, and they hadn't released a product yet. And they had a, a no, head of marketing or something like that. I was like, it's, uh, it's do not make the product before you. Build the team that does the marketing for the product. Well, I'd say actually, I think you should build your marketing and product together because they go hand in hand. Sure, sure. I mean, it was it was like a, it was like a VP level yeah, sort of I, thing. So I would say that you don't hire VP levels for your for your seed stage stuff. I'd say hire a VP level person if they can also do individual level work. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. We should step back a little bit yeah. and, and sort of the thing I think that we're talking about is you know when, when you start out a, a new team or, or a new company, you're in the range of like two to five people. Yeah, and the steps, the things, and the activities, and and all the stuff that you do at two to five people should be suitable for. I'm going to say getting product market fit on that. Yeah, I think when you're two to five people, you're you're constantly iterating on what is our product, what is our market, right, right. and that's why I say it's yeah. it's good to have a marketing person. Right. Like, so we we talk about this all the time. Yeah. And so what we're going to talk about this week is the next level. So you're taking it from the five people to fifteen to twenty people at the at the next level of of scale, right? Um, and and what's involved in that? Well, I'll be honest that my company has eight people, so I don't know how qualified I am to participate in this podcast. You, you, you've done this before in in various organizations, I think, or been part of various organizations that go in that. Yeah, of oh. course. Um, I, I've only been part of very large organizations and one organization that that scaled, and then I have the the collective wisdom of many many startup founder. Commiseration, and here's how we fucked up, and oh my god, you should see the problems that we went through when we were scaling. So, what are some of the common mistakes that you've seen? Uh, well, not scaling early enough. So, in particular, organizations outside of uh, of engineering. So, it's very common to have engineer founders like you know hire more engineers, 
and in particular to not build a product org. That's uh, th- th- that I feel is is a mistake people keep making. Why do you think that is? I think engineers have a worldview that is sort of influenced by open source or very strongly influenced by open source. And open source, for the most part, is engineers building and engineers PMing as sort of a unified function. And there's no real distinction between the PM function and the. Um, I guess I would say that the PM function is also like very restricted in, in open source. Like the things that you build are the things that, that scratch your itch and any pull requests that come your way. It's it's a real lead with code sort of thing. And I think I mean I actually think that that's completely unsuitable for open source products, but it's particularly unsuitable for for startups or, or new products. Well, I, th- I think it's uh, the critique is that it's reactive, and some might say that Linus Torvald is. The reason why some people think he's a jerk is that he's like, I don't want to take every pull request. I have a vision, and I'm trying to mm-hmm. make sure that the only thing I accept is the things that fit the vision. But what ends up happening then is that you're rejecting people extremely late in the process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is the problem with open source. Like the, uh, I, I made a contribution to to something the other day, and before I made a contribution, I made an issue saying like, if I made this, would you accept it? Yeah, crickets. And so then I built it and made a pull request, and there's still crickets. It's been it's been like four days, which I don't know. Maybe that's a bit quick, but you kind of expect an answer in four days. Yeah, I mean, I think it goes along with them. I, I think the the value of product management is in some ways validating that there's a need or a market for something before you do the work to building it. Right, right, right. right. Whereas open source does it backwards, where right. people go off and build their code. Mm-hmm. And, then, and and this is this is uh, and then get their noses right rightfully a little bit out of joint. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. But, but it's like I did all this work. Yeah. Well, so the, the, this is this is a problem that that I had at Circle that I wasn't very good at articulating what our what our direction was and what the product vision was, and so people would would routinely build stuff where I stuck my nose in, like literally at the last minute to say, oh, we can't ship this because it doesn't fit within the within the product vision. And that's heartbreaking for everybody. Oh god, yeah, no, that that, that was that was the worst thing. If if I would run a company again, or you know, advice for for people managing this transition at, at a new startup, the most important thing is set out your your company mission, your company vision, your culture, and your product. Vision. You want to really establish who you are, what you want to be, where you want to go, what you want to do as a collective unit, so that everyone is on the same page about that. And I mean, that solves all sorts of problems. Like, no, you know, when you're when you're hiring someone, it's like, does this person agree with the vision? You know, are they are they part of the mission? Is is that a mission that that they agree with? And same thing at the at the company level and also at the product level. You know, if if someone joins your company and wants to take it in a, take the product in a radically different direction, then either they need to change their mind or you need to change your mind. Otherwise, you're just going to be pulling in opposite directions from each other. Yeah, I mean, so two examples. You put your finger on why I became a product manager. Okay, I was an engineer and I was tired of building stuff that the product managers would reject after it was built. Right. Okay. It was extremely painful. Yeah. From us who'd built mm-hmm. it. And I was like, I, we need to stop doing this. This, right. this. this is not what I want to do anymore. If I'm a product manager, this will not happen. And of course, it still happens. But you have you understand why, and you have more empathy, and you try mm-hmm. to try to fix it. Right. And I think you inadvertently or inadvertently build an organization that reflects your own mission or lack of mission. Mm-hmm. Like I've heard, to say more about that. So I've heard that GitHub has gone through a lot of strife right now because they had built a company that was very much on a bottoms up. Mm-hmm. You know, we sell to the individual developer ethos, yep. and now they're trying to go more enterprisey for very obvious reasons. That's mm-hmm. where there's a lot more money. Yeah, and a lot of people are just like, we can't work here anymore. Oh wow! 
Specifically around GitHub, I heard that they've gone through like many different transitions of, of, of that size. But I guess every company goes through major transitions. In particular, the you know the, there's a saying in in the valley that. I forget what exactly it is, but you know, the people who are your heroes up front are not going to be the people who are there in your organization later. Well, it's it's a classic. Have you read the Innovator's Dilemma? Uh, I wish I had. It's it's a really good book. I mean, this is not new. This is a book thirty years ago, but it's yeah. talking about how the innovators are the the prototypers, the mm-hmm. people who are willing to wear a lot of different hats, mm-hmm. who are willing to be wrong very quickly. Right. And then you have a, a transition point to more lieutenants. Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 that the, goes the, right right into our um, last week's discussion of generalization versus specialization. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's 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 not anything unique to software. It's unique to any new yeah. thing. Right. So the the problem then with with product managers when when you bring them in is often engineers feel that there's a lack of autonomy that they're that they're getting out of it. You know, they used to be the ones who are the decision makers about about what to build and and all that sort of thing. And then there's a feeling that the product managers are going to tell them what to build and often that that feeling is is based in reality. Yeah. Like I said, I've been on both sides of this. Mm-hmm. I don't have a clean answer. It really depends on your engineers. Mm-hmm. Like I have an engineer friend who says, you know, I, I have a lot of personal stuff going on right now and I just want to be told what to do. Right, right, right. He loves being an engineer. Yeah. Other people are like, I think of myself as a product manager slash engineer slash marketing slash, and you're like, mm-hmm. well, okay, you're none of these things very well right now. Right, right, right. People think that the product managers are managers. Engineers, I think, you know, often feel that product managers are managers. They're, they're people who tell them what to do. Right? Oh no, product managers are persuaders. Oh, the, exactly right. So a good a good product manager is is a persuader. Exactly. Well, a persuader, a facilitator, a consultator, right, right. a researcher. I think the greatest strength of a product manager is to knit together a group of people all with different ideas mm-hmm. and make them collaborate on a common goal. Yeah. So if your organization is entirely engineers at the start, I think the first thing you're going to need when you're scaling is get the start of a product organization together. And you know, someone who has the skill set and who has the experience to be a product manager before or who has been a product manager before and understands what a successful product organization looks like is going to be a really good thing to get in, especially if they can work together with the engineers and not against them. Yeah, I think that's key. I think if they think of themselves at odds, it will not succeed. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. Well, you, you sometimes get product managers who there's this saying that the product manager is like the CEO of their organization or of their like sub product. I kind of feel that uh, that's I, I don't think that that's a very apt definition of, of a, what a good product manager does. But there's a lot of people who feel that that way. Who feel that way. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, I like I said I was a product manager and now I'm a CEO. Right, but you wouldn't you wouldn't have a product manager and give them CEO level. Well, I, I guess it depends on, on on what you see as as the CEO's role. But you know, a lot of the CEOs, and include myself in this, you know, work towards a little bit, you know, building by consensus and trying to get the direction the same, and don't actually tell people what to do. But the, I think the traditional view of a CEO is someone who tells people what to do and then is you know responsible when it all fails. Yeah, I think I was fortunate in that I was basically given a mini mini GM role at my past mm-hmm. companies where I okay. had responsibility for revenue, mm-hmm. so not just for product, but revenue, how many sales we made. Yeah. Um, marketing, and it was very good for me to think that way. That you can tell people what to do, but if you talk to them and listen and come up with a shared path forward, mm-hmm. things go better. Right, right, right. So sp- speaking of of talking and listen, I think management is a good 
thing to talk about in in the context of of the scaling that we're talking about. Yeah, let's. We, you should have managers. That's that's a controversial thing. Well, it's funny. So I love talking to you, Paul, because I think I've talked to post transition Paul. I, I think you have. Yeah, yeah. No, pre pre transition Paul had a had a different point of view. Like I've heard rumors that like before you're very much like we never need PMs. Everybody could self manage. Right, right. right. Well, so, so, so the, a little bit, but um, I I think the. Position that that I used to have it is is that everyone should be ICs of of, of various kinds and so in, in particular I think it's interesting related to management in that when you have a manager or a traditional view of a manager is someone who or a manager of an engineering team let's say is often someone who is making technical decisions who's making architectural decisions who's making like hiring and firing and, and all that sort of thing doing you know HR stuff and also is responsible for the people stuff the the career development the you know how are you feeling today let me get you a, a glass of orange juice you know so that you can you can crank this code out and sometimes you know on top of that they also write code and it occurred to me, I think it's very obvious in fact, that the idea that the best person on your team, who, who's usually the person who gets promoted to engineering manager, do they also happen to have all these skills? Like they're, they're your best coder. Are, are they also, you know, have people skills and that sort of thing? So instead you need to break it out into, into you know, different roles. And I think the, the people manager role is necessarily one that, that the organization needs, and then the the product manager role is necessarily one that the team needs, and then the um you know possibly there's some sort of you know architecture or, or technical decision making sort of role that, and I think that this is actually what what modern companies kind of look like. The thing I found interesting before pre transition Paul would have said that you can have all this without hierarchy. And I think post transition Paul is like, yeah, I suppose you could, but I haven't seen it work. Yeah, it's interesting because Google did a big longitudinal study because um, mm-hmm. they had the theory that the best engineering manager is the best technical person because mm-hmm. people need to, you know, uh, sure. respect their acumen. And then they did a lot of studies, and it turned out of their own managers, yeah. it turned out that no, those were the people who had the best technical skills were sometimes the worst managers. Right, I wouldn't be surprised. Well, you're not surprised, but like yeah. it, it, it was a surprise to them. I, I had a surprise around product management, and I'll relate this back. And my surprise was that not all engineers can do product management. And when I say product management, uh, let's, let's say can can have good product vision and insights. And I was surprised because I thought like inherently that's a part of of what was building a product, right? Uh, or at least inherently what was part of an, of being an engineer. And then I thought back and was like, well, actually, you know, we've never been trained in building products. We've Never yeah. been trained in product vision. You know, really, what we've been taught to do, or at least if you go to you know, computer science courses or, or whatever, is you, you're taught to write code yeah. and sometimes think about formal methods. But generally, you're you know there there to write code. And so, people who who are engineers um, have ten years of experience of writing code, and and not necessarily, although sometimes they're very talented product vision people in there as well. And they go nicely hand in hand, but very, very often are missing. And so the assumption that I had had was, oh, everyone's going to, you know, be good at product vision, and that assumption was flawed. And I think it's the it's the same thing that maybe that maybe Google had made that like maybe Larry and Sergey were particularly good at this, or some early people, some of the early people that they hired, or you know, or the first people who got promoted into management were excellent technical people who you know thought, oh well, excellent technical people are also obviously going to have excellent communication skills. And I, I think you could make some sort of Intuitive argument there that wouldn't necessarily hold up too well. Well, I think it's you. It's you think everybody is like yourself. 
Like I think you think everybody is like yourself, or the examples that that you can see well, in front I, of you. I know that you're an excellent coder and you have an excellent product vision. Well, actually, you've no idea that I'm an excellent coder at all. Ah, I mean, you're, you're assuming I'm an excellent coder, but there's there's no evidence of this whatsoever. Uh, people have told me this. Who who has told you this? I can't think of anyone who would say I'm an excellent coder. Who, who has knowledge that I'm an excellent coder? There there is no one that would vouch for you. I mean, you know, when I'm looking closely at who has worked for me, uh, or worked with me, or who I've worked for, I mean, the amount of people who have closely looked at my code, or the the speed at which I put out code, or, or how my code holds up in production, that sort of thing, I'm not sure that there's uh, th- there might be two or three people in total who who could say uh, I'm an excellent coder. I don't think I'm an excellent coder, but you do. Look excellent in a launch darkly T-shirt. I, thank you, thank you. It's it's a constant reminder that I don't have all the good ideas. I don't understand. I mean that launch darkly is a good idea. Oh, thanks, Paul. I, I didn't think of it. In oh, fact, yeah. when I first heard of it, I thought this is stupid. Wait, wait, wait you did you really? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. No, well, it's like feature flags as a service. That that doesn't make sense. It's like why, a, why, did you, why did you think it was stupid? Because it's a it's a small library, right? Oh, I mean, I, I, I mean it's not right, but it's. Uh, this is fascinating. Yeah, so, because yeah, yeah. um, why did why do you think it was stupid? So I didn't say you're stupid. Oh no 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 no. Yeah no. okay okay. Well, I mean, I, I thought like uh, there's there's no way you could possibly use that. Like we built that in fifty lines. I don't understand how there's a whole company behind this. Yeah, I mean that's that's a common evolution. Is um, so so we're creating a category, and the first part of it is why would you need that? Yeah. Okay, maybe I might need that, but if so, yeah, I would build it myself. Right 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 right. Okay, wait a second. Yeah. I mean, the, maybe the, I'll maybe I'll buy this. Yeah. And so it's funny because I've seen so many people go through that evolution in the past two years. Well, the the, the time that that we built our fourth feature flag ish thing in the code base, that was different to all the others for some specific reason. We're like, oh, maybe we should stop building these things ourselves. That's yeah. So that's level four. Right. Right. Level zero is yeah. Why the hell would anybody ever need this? And so is it level five is where you buy LaunchDarkly. Yeah. Yeah. No. That, that that's that's where we are. Happy customers. Yeah. So it's really funny though because um people go through these stages. Right. And, oh um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally see it. I mean, it's the same with CI, right? People are like, oh well, you know, first, yeah, I can just run tests on my own machine, and then some problems with that. Oh, I can set up Jenkins, and they're three days into setting up Jenkins, like, oh, all right, maybe I will get try this Circle CI thing. Yeah, I love it when people acknowledge that we exist. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think I told you, I went to this conference in Sydney, and um, I said I did feature flags, and I was going to say a comma, say who it was, and they all just started talking about feature flags and why they were or weren't a good idea. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. Nobody knew who I was. Oh, perfect, perfect. I'd feature flagged myself. Right. This is a long detour from. Oh, um, were we on managers? We were on whether or not Paul was a good coder. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's just go with with maybe. All right. So the original the original point was people assume that everybody is like them. Mm-hmm. So as a founder of a company, of course you have to have some sort of vision, mm-hmm. and you have to have some sort of way to build what you're building. Yeah. And then you think everybody I hire will be just like me. It's just I give them the title of product manager, and they'll perform like a product manager. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, like I get very annoyed at companies that require all product managers to have a CS degree. Mm. I think that's extremely foolhardy yeah. and short-sighted. So, so, so someone explained to me the the Google versus the Facebook. School of, of product managers. And apparently at Google, uh, and I haven't worked at Google or Facebook, so correct me if I'm wrong. And you're um, a terrible coder. Yeah. Yeah, I probably wouldn't even get in. So the Google product managers have a CS background, and the Facebook product managers have a design background. That explains a that's lot. Actually, that's actually all I have on, on this topic. No, I think it explains a lot. I mean, um, I think you solve for what you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, Google is kind of legendary for. It's non-existent support. Yep. It's complicated systems. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and that that's why they're really floundering with Google Cloud Engine. I, I tried to build something on Google Cloud. It was it was on an app engine, and I thought it would be super simple to throw up like a single page app on it. No, 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 oh my, so much. Wait, was it just over-engineered? The, the, there was just so so many steps involved. Yeah. yeah, and I was I was thinking, you know, maybe I can avoid AWS because AWS is so many steps involved, and like run on. I mean, my, my view of it is that Google Cloud Platform is sort of like a second generation of of AWS. And no, it's 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 not a second generation. It's its own genetic mm, offshoot. Yeah. I read a lot of evolutionary uh, psychology when I was on the plane. Oh, nice, nice. Did you read um, Why Beautiful People Have More Daughters? I have that book, but it's been a long time since I read it. Uh, I love that book. It's, it's As I understand it, the entire field of evolutionary psychology is questionable. But it's one of those books where it's kind of like Freakonomics that like maybe each individual chapter is is questionable in some way, but the overall idea in Freakonomics case, the the idea of, of incentives and in evolutionary psychology, the, the idea that maybe we do things because ten thousand years ago we did things. But I think I think they're great. Yeah, I think there's this idea that everything is a straightforward evolution. It's better than the thing before it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're just. Side shoots, right? And so you think Google Cloud Platform is a side shoot of AWS? Yeah, I mean it could still evolve to be better, but like mm. everything I've heard right now is that everybody's consolidating on AWS. Uh, funny thing about AWS services, uh, my, that, my, that everybody loves to hate on them. Well, yeah. So, so, so my, my sense is that there's two classes of AWS services. Uh, there's the things that they build themselves, which are usually great, and there's the things where they copied other people, which are usually crap. So I think that when you see AWS copying your startup, I think generally there's very little to worry about. Well, except for they have the might of AWS. Yeah, I mean, and, and sure, they'll make more money from the AWS version of it than than you ever make because they they have that. But like, you'll still have a better product that you're that you're able to uh, carve out a very successful and large business out of. But I think if you're building something that AWS built themselves, like you don't really see people. Oh, I see your point. Yeah, I see your point. Like AWS built you know, EC2, right? Yep, and and they're they're excellent at building EC2. But then they built code pipelines, and yeah, not so much. So Martine came in and did a podcast with us a couple weeks ago, and this this kind of goes contrary to dog fooding. Like, so what you're basically saying is Amazon is very good at building stuff that is a replica of something they built for themselves, but they're bad at being product managers for stuff that they're not building in house. Yeah, roughly. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the dog fooding they're good at. Yeah. Yeah, and what eating someone else's dog food or, or act basically acting like a product manager for external customers. Yes, yes. That that seems about right to me. Yeah. yeah. Whereas I think Facebook has been so good because they focus on a single product. I mean, it's very easy to do if you're Facebook. Yeah. I mean, also Facebook has thousands of products. You just kind of depending where you draw your lines. Yeah. Oh. I've talked to. A pretty sizable company. They're like forty people. And they don't have a product manager. I was kind of amazed. So it's not that it's impossible to build a successful company without any of these things, right? It's just that that you, you're making it much much harder on yourself. Well, what it, my my question to them is that you have people who are acting as product managers. Mm-hmm. Probably your SEs or your CTO or somebody's mm-hmm. acting as a product manager, yeah. and it's sucking up a lot of their time. Right. It's just you're not giving them their title, and it's not getting right. first level support. Yeah, and they're they're probably not particularly good at it. And, yeah, and that sort of thing. And when I talked to them, it turned out that one of their SEs was basically acting as a product manager. Mm-hmm. Right. But with a very limited kind of view of the world. 
So the thing that the product manager does, or one of the things that you start to need to do at the at the second level, second stage of, of scaling, is that you start to need to prioritize. Yeah. Before I was a product manager, yeah. I thought my biggest issue would be coming up with the things to do. Yeah. I really thought this. I was like, oh, how am I going to still get ideas? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Once you're a product manager, you're like, there is no shortage right, 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 of ideas. Right. Everybody has an idea. Yeah. I, I guess it's a thing that's organic at five people. You know what it is you're going to build because someone has a really strong vision and it doesn't really need to be that informed by customers perhaps or you know there doesn't necessarily have to be feedback. The emails are are coming in from from existing customers with those conversations you know as you're on your way to product market fit. And it's kind of obvious what what prioritization is. I think Paul Graham said there's a you don't need a bug tracker because the things that are most obvious are the things that you need to fix, and you don't yeah. need to write anything down. And that that holds to like three, four people. Yeah, I yeah. mean, it it should be very obvious. Well, let me let me give a slight shade. Mm-hmm. The micro things are very obvious to people. Mm-hmm. The macro things sometimes can be much harder. I, I look at it a slightly different way. I, I look at it that that the things that you do yourself are obvious. The things that you're dog fooding are obvious, and other use cases, other parts of the product, uh, you know, things that you know yourself. So you, your your support forums might get neglected, or you know, stuff that you don't need yourself need explicit support at the second level of staging. And in particular, if there's a thing that you're slightly talented at. Where you're doing well with it, that's a thing that you especially need to get out from under you. So, for example, let's say that you're particularly good at writing blog posts that drive traffic, right? When you start to scale your company, you need to hire someone whose explicit job that is because you will stop doing it and you won't really get a focus on it because you're kind of good enough at it and you think it kind of comes naturally. And you can say the same thing with support, you can say the same thing with, with really any part of marketing. Uh, you can say the same thing with product design, you can say the same thing with product vision. If you're vaguely kind of sales, yeah. Uh, if if you're vaguely kind of good at it, then that needs to become its own area of responsibility with someone responsible for it as soon as possible or else you'll you'll flounder at the next stage. Yeah, I definitely we went through those transitions. I, I think the thing that struck home most to me is that there's only so much time. Mm-hmm. Right, right. But community is something interesting. I mean, you you had some opinions about community and culture at a, at a company. How the culture of one company might not work for another culture. Oh yeah, I mean, like what I was saying before about you know you have to set your your mission and your vision and that sort of thing. And really, what those are are elements of, of company culture. You have to know what what it is that that you're building um, as as a company, and you want all the people who are, who are on board for that ride to to be compatible with that culture. There's a great chart that Rand Fishkin made. Um, that's the CEO of uh, Moz.com or former f- founder of, of Moz. And what he said is, it's it's who do you fire, right? And so you've got someone who's maybe not so great at their job, or someone who's maybe not so great at their culture, mm. uh, or on the other axis, mm. you know, they they they're good at it. So, so you you've got four states, right? Good at their job, good at their good in culture. And he said that people who aren't necessarily doing great at their job, but they're great in the culture, you keep them. And people who are doing badly in their culture, but doing great at their job, you let them go. So I agree, except for I think that's where a lot of concerns about Silicon Valley diversity come from, because culture can be such a catch-all for, you know, do you like to go play basketball lunch? And I'd say, like some people are just not suited to that. So we were talking a little bit about, you know, that that you have to have product managers and or you you have to have prioritization and and that you have to have explicit, um, you know, direction and that sort of thing. I think you have to have ruthless prioritization. Right. 
And and I, I think you have to have prioritization, not just in what you're going to do, but in how well you're going to do anything. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, you could spend a long time on one feature. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really painful, particularly at your at any size. Mm. What well, it depends like, like on how the important that feature is. Well, it's really hard. You know, people hate hearing that this is a checkbox feature, but sometimes mm-hmm. they are. Right. Or like sometimes it's like we're just doing this for competitive pressure. The I think the one that every SaaS company learns is the um, they need invoice emails and they need to have a PDF attached. And it's like no, no one cares about this feature except the people who, except the accountants of the people who pay you. Well, and we got this feature request so, so many times before we built it, and it was just—it's so unimportant as far as the product goes, but it's essential in terms of what customers need. I mean, we built it just because every month people would email us where yeah. invoices, and yeah. we would hand make them one, and we're like, it wasn't—it was mainly that it we're like, hey, it's—we got to the point where like it's costing us a couple hours a month yeah. to, to hand make invoices. And the irony is that I think Stripe has it built in now. Yeah, actually, Circle CI was one of the people who wanted invoices. I recall. Oh, really? Yeah. I think. Oh man, it's it's come full circle. Well, that's because we we've scaled to the to the fifty people size now, and we need things that we didn't need full when we were five. Circle. Uh, so did, the, the, did you do you want to go around the topic? Oh my god. Um, Are we just spiraling into? So the direction that, that that I was trying to go was talking about goal setting. So there's prioritization. But really, you need kind of a high-level thing. That's like, what are the goals that we as a company are trying to achieve? And then at a at a lower level, what are good habits and processes that allow individuals and teams to get the most out of their their time at work? Yeah, that's a lovely way to put it. So you you were saying earlier about like, oh, you think you know Paul's a great coder or whatever? Um, Which you, I'm surprised. Who, who you knows? Did. I, I I feel like you're fishing at this point. Well, no. So I, I remember reading about the habits of uh, Richard Stallman and also of John Carmack. And so Richard Stallman famously, like you know, sat down in a room for thirty days and produced GCC. Right? And I feel I don't have the process or the habits to sit down in a room and produce a compiler in thirty days. Do you think that's because of what a compiler is? No, no. I, I think I think it's all to do with like my habits and. Like so, 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 for example, I've I've been coding some stuff recently by myself, and I think I'm terrible when I don't have, let's call it an accountability buddy. Yeah. Um, and like I, but some people, you know, can can sit in a room for thirty days and and, and produce a compiler. I, I'd sit in a room for thirty days and I'd I'd read a lot of Hacker News. <laughs> Do you think that's why Hacker News exists? Because people were procrastinating. Yeah. Oh man, I, I read this amazing interview. Do, well, do people procrastinate because of Hacker News, or does Hacker News exist because of procrastinators? Oh, I, I'm I'm sure PG was procrastinating to. <laughs> so there's this panel where George R. R. Martin and um, Stephen King were both talking. Oh, and those are the two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, exactly. Like Stephen King yeah. has so many books that right. he made a pseudonym. Yeah. Because he didn't want to put out like five Stephen King books in a year. Yeah. Like literally, he's yeah, like, oh, yeah, I have yeah, too yeah, much. Yeah. I have too much product. Yeah. So they, they were talking, and Stephen King said something like, "Oh, you know, thirty days, I can, I can produce a, a new book or whatever." And, and George R. R. Martin is like, "But what happens when you kind of get stuck?" And and like then you go check your email, and, and it's like George R. R. Martin has classic procrastinator yeah. problem, and that's and that's why he's going to die without finishing that series. <sighs> yeah, I know the TV show is going to wrap up. We'll, we'll we'll know the the ending before before even like Winds of Winter comes out, which, yeah. is, which is the second last book, not even the last one. So I, I have a soft spot for Stephen King. I know he's considered kind of lowbrow, but his his books are good. Yeah. I really enjoyed one Stephen King book, which I think wasn't labeled Stephen King. One of the Richard Bachman ones. I don't think it was. 
What, did he have another pseudonym? He might have had another, but he wrote like The Running Man and The Long Walk. Yeah, no, it wasn't, wasn't one of them. It was The, the Long Walk. Is basically, the Long Mile? It was a race where you had to walk, um, I think it was a mile every 20 minutes. Okay. So like 300 people did it, started. If you didn't do a mile every 20 minutes, they shot you. Oh, it's like Takeshi's Castle. Yeah. So it was like it was basically like an ultra marathon, but with the ultimate price. No, oh, wow. I, I think Stephen King is a living proof that you can write high quality books and high quantity, and that's what drives other writers nuts. Taking that analogy back to to software, the difference between a high performing team and a not high performing team is often not the skill of the people of, of let's say the coders on the team, but largely down to process, and that's individual process and team process. Yeah. If if you put hurdles in the way of people and. and Finally, we're back on continuous delivery. Then you know stuff is going to get delivered a lot slower. And if you try to remove all, all sorts of hurdles, and that's things like like product direction. You know, if everyone agrees on on the direction of the product, then ninety percent, or you'll maybe double your productivity. If you have agreed goals, and and you know whether you're using a framework like OKRs or, or you just like you know list out here's what we want to do this month. You'll get there a lot, lot faster, and this is why people like Agile, they like Scrum, because they're they're processes that that work. And then people who, I think a lot of the people who criticize Agile or criticize Scrum, maybe they don't feel the same problem that a lot of people have. Maybe they're just like they have really good processes themselves, or they're you know they're able to ship things without necessarily having a unifying team process. I think people who, and we we've had this fight before because I defended Waterfall. I think sometimes people think of Agile as giving up too much control. Okay. They like to have everything documented and crossed to a T before people march off to go write them. I mean, documenting them and crossing off to a T is is perfect example of something that sits in the way of of yeah. producing. Yeah, I yeah. learned I learned this very early because that was my first job. One of my first jobs was writing docs. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was writing specifications, and I'm like, you don't ship a specification, right? It could be the most beautiful specification in the world, but it doesn't matter. I once went for a government contract where the thing was to produce a specification, but the specification was in such depth that like someone had actually written this software and then turned it into a specification. And then they were also bidding for it, so they were just going to produce the software that they had already written. That's so meta. Oh, uh, yeah, it's mental. Was I mean, it? I, I went to that meeting, I was like, nope, never, never doing any government procuring ever again. <laughs> was this in Ireland? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean um... it seems like it's kind of the same everywhere. I do think um, documentation at the right level is good, so that you don't have the same arguments or discussions over and over again mm-hmm. about like why do we build it this way. Or... There is a technique that that I came up with with Alan, my co-founder, for how to solve those sort of discussions. So I tend to find that most of those arguments are implementation level yep. details, yep. right? And so you argue, oh no, I I want to write it this way. Uh, or you, it needs to it needs to be written this way because because of this goal, My and then biggest. you counter with right. So so we came up with a solution for this, and it's basically that I'm sure many people have come up with a solution. I'm not saying I invented this, but here's the one that, that that we did. Basically, all discussions have three levels. There's the implementation level, there's the solution level, and then there's the top level, which you could call the problem level or the goal level. Yeah, and whenever you're arguing at the lower level. Go back up to the problem level and make sure that you're solving the same problem. Yeah. And then when you solve, you agree on the problem. It's typically very easy to agree on the solution. And once you agree on the solution, it's typically very easy to agree on the implementation. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. And I think a good product manager, and this goes back to why I don't think they need a CS degree. Mm -hmm. A good product manager is very good at that top level. Right. 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 
Um, yeah, exactly. And and in fact, when discussing the oh, you know, product manager is, is going to take away my my autonomy. Really, what the product manager should be doing is agreeing with everyone, customers, engineers, on what the top level stuff is. Maybe agreeing with the engineers on on what the solution is, and and bringing that back to customers to check, and then leaving the implementation stuff entirely to the engineers. Where I've seen product managers get into trouble is where they start to make you know, for example, an API design. And I was literally like, or like a database design. I was just like, why, why, what? I'm not sure I agree on API design. Like, a, an well, API design is, a, is an externally consumable No, for design. internal APIs. Oh, oh, like this is how the code should be organized. Yes. Oh, yeah, no, no. Yeah. So no. they were designing the architecture. Yeah. And I was just like, what? what? I, I've ended up in this trap several times where, like, you know, I, I, I consider a ton of problems and then it naturally forms the, the solution in my head. The, like all, all the way down to the code, and then I'm trying to describe, oh, we should do this implementation stuff, and people are like, we're not even on the same page. Yeah, we're, not even, the we're not, we're not yeah. even, on the, we're not even in the same book. Yeah, and yeah, we're not yeah, even on the yeah, same yeah, shelf, yeah, and we're not yeah. even the same library. So the, the, this would argue that engineers might be worse product managers than non-engineers because they they have the ability to know how they would implement it themselves, and. Whereas if someone doesn't actually know how to write code and is a product manager, then they're like, well, here's kind of what we need to have done. Yeah, I mean, this is a perennial debate I've had many times. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm on the side you are. The opposite is that, oh, the product managers should understand the code so they know what is in it as possible. And I say the reverse. Yeah. If oh, you, really? If you know what the code can and can't do, you'll start to have Stockholm syndrome. True, and, true. And you're yeah. like, you don't even put forward what customers really want because you're like, oh, the, the code can't do that, so I'm not even going to mention it. Well, that. there's also the you know, it would be really cheap to do it like this. Like often, the prioritization that a product manager does is effort versus reward. Yeah. Right. So and that, if that if they have a good feeling about what effort is, and sometimes you can know what effort is. So, uh, I, I'd say the biggest lesson I've learned is don't assume and go ask the engineering explicitly. Like sometimes stuff I think is very expensive is cheap, and sometimes stuff I think is cheap is expensive. Yeah, but if you know the actual code base. Like when you know the actual code base, you you have some idea of actually we could do this super cheap, yeah. Or we, things that you might not have thought of can actually be be super. You know, usually, if you discuss that with an engineer, they'll they'll come back to you with, oh yeah, the, we can do it this way. I guess what I'm saying is dialogue with the engineer rather than telling people what to do. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you're the, you're the voice of the customer. So there's an idea that everyone can be the voice of the customer. All right, and you have a similar idea. Like everyone should be marketing. Everyone should be, whatever the thing is. I, whenever that Everybody happens, no one sales. is doing it. Everyone's yeah. Everyone should, when, when that happens, no one is. Wait, wait tell me more because I, I agree with you violently. So we, we we did a thing where like everyone does support. All right, so every week a different person did support, and th- this was all, when we were up to about nine people. I I think we did this, and it was really a terrible idea. I mean, it was, it was a wonderful idea in many ways, but it was also a really bad idea. Because no one was specializing on it, we kind of took the knowledge that we built up and, and discarded it almost. So like whatever, whatever you learned in that week, at the end of the week you were burnt out and not ready to solve it. The idea was you got, got to empathize with the customer, you really hear about something that, that's important and then you get to prioritize it. And so what we had essentially was people filtered through talking to customers on support, and everyone made their own prioritization function, and sometimes people fix things. Uh, but usually they were so burnt out by actually being on support that they were dying to get back to whatever they'd been working on before. 
Oh, are you saying that they would do nothing but support for that week? Nothing but support for that week. Oh. I mean, if they had time, they would try to do more than support. And I, I would say, or if they had time, they would try to also knock out a feature that solves some of the support. If I had to do that again, I'd say that you should have two people, one actually on support and one in charge of... And we, we also tried that, but I think if we'd had a dedicated support function early... And that being a sort of a voice to filter in to educate the rest of the team as to what problems people were facing and how to prioritize them to lower support and that sort of thing. Once we actually switched to that model, which is much closer to what we do now, things got a lot easier and our support ticket rate descended dramatically because there was actually someone whose job it is now to write docs to answer the most important customer support thing and, and so on. Yeah, I think this goes back to something we talked about before about specialization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, last week's conversation is very relevant to to this week's one. Yeah, I mean, at Tripit, we we had a monthly meeting where a support manager like collated the top ten sources of tickets, mm-hmm. and some were just stuff that we weren't going to ever change. Like, okay. for example, we were never going to add a BlackBerry app, mm. but we knew what the other tickets were, and we could start knocking stuff out. Right, right, right. right. Whereas I think if you didn't have somebody who had a consolidated product view, they would have said, "Hey, everybody's complaining. We have this very vocal minority that wants BlackBerry. Yeah, let's march off and do it." Not mm. seeing the bigger market picture that BlackBerry is is and was kind of dwindling, mm-hmm. and that wasn't a good use of time. We just launched a Bitbucket support at CircleCI, which has been since the dawn of time the the number one requested feature in our support. Specifically by non-customers, because by definition, if if you use Bitbucket, you're you're or you tend to use Bitbucket or GitHub as opposed to both. Um, and we were we were GitHub only. I argue that we chose the right time, or at least close to the right time, to to offer Bitbucket support. Maybe we're a year off in either direction, but you know, if we had launched at the start with both Bitbucket and GitHub, yeah, I think it would have been very hard to specialize. We'd be doing twice the amount of work. It's it's hard to go broad early, yep. Um, and limiting your your platforms in particular, I think, is a, is a very very useful way of um, keeping your velocity up. I think that's what a good product manager does. That, that right. goes back yep. to priority. Um, I think the other sin you can do if you're too driven by your own product and your current customers is you don't see the bigger world around you. Right. Uh, another problem with dog fooding. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a sin I did when I went from being an engineer to. Product is I thought it would be extremely easy. I would just do all the stuff I already saw that was a problem with our system. Mm-hmm. Once I became a product manager, I realized that there was this vast universe out there of things that I had just not encountered before. Mm-hmm. Competitive pressure, deals we weren't closing. Right, right, right. You know, and then I mean, related to that, I think is is technical debt. It's it's very easy to become myopically focused on reducing technical debt or oh, yeah. something like that. But really, the the skill to a successful product or a successful organization or a successful startup is the right amount of tolerance for fucking up all these things. <laughs> so you you have to put the right amount of focus into everything and not too much. Yeah. I mean, so if you get your sales process perfectly, you know that that maybe that maybe is time that that you should have put into something else. Or or if your support. Stuff is perfect, or your docs are perfect. Like you want to have the right amount of debt in all the things that, uh, and I think being a successful team, organization, startup, product, whatever, is is balancing those well. Yeah, I mean the, the classic Reed Hoffman quote is: if if you're not completely embarrassed by your first iteration, you waited too long to ship. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, perfect. And it's really hard. And if, if you watch Silicon Valley, they they actually use that quote in a recent episode. They do. They do. Yeah. Wow. I, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's startup culture perfectly. I wish I wasn't so busy doing my own startup that I could like watch TV again. I'm I'm sure you can find time. 
Not, get rid of one ultra marathon and watch the entire thing start to finish. <laughs> just just uh, instead of running for uh, 50 miles, watch the Silicon Valley. Watch an entire season. I've heard that it's eerily accurate, which I think is why I can't watch it. Oh, it's, it's scary. It's scary. Like I, I know everyone involved. Yeah. Or, or you know, a person caricatured by a, a character. You, you know, is there an Edith in it? I'm almost sure there is. I, I can't think of it off the top of my head. Yeah, that would be scary. Is there a Paul in it? I think that the so the, the Richard Hendricks is the the star. I think that him going into Peter. Peter Thiel, uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the Peter Thiel guy at the start. Like I, I was there, and when when that happened, I was like, oh god, uh, what would happen? Oh no, it was, it was just like I have been in that situation. The 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 extreme naivety, trying to raise money with nothing and no knowledge of what you're doing, and then having someone tell you like, what the fuck are you doing? Oh wow. Yeah, no, it's it's. I I, I feel like half the people in the San Francisco area have been in that chair. Oh, I'm sure I've been in that chair. Yeah. Oh. I don't know if I can watch it. I might like. It's. I mean, parts parts of it are definitely awful. Just because it's so true. And yeah. then, and then I think sometimes that like half the stuff that really happens, like you can't, people wouldn't believe you. I think they've had to cut stuff out of the show because it was too unrealistic. And or the stuff that actually happened out of the show because it was too unrealistic. Yeah, I mean, like. Silicon Valley is a weird place. I mean, it's made up of of unrealistic people doing unrealistic things. I think you have to be a naive dreamer to think that you can create something new from nothing. Mm-hmm. But yeah. and then you need to be some sort of like steady general to go from we've created something out of nothing to scaling it to uh, to the next level. That's why I think ultra marathons are good training. You have to be a naive dreamer to think that a human can run a hundred miles, mm-hmm. and then you have to be a steady plotter to put in all the work to make it happen. Hmm. A, a very nice analogy. What happens when you get to the to the end of the of the hundred miles? Get a nice steak dinner. Is that is that an IPO? Is that the exit? Another <laughs> the nice steak dinner. Yeah. They give you a belt buckle. Okay, and you, a steak. And a steak, and you take a couple months off, and then you start thinking about your next ultra marathon. Oh, really? You can't run again for several months. Uh, it depends who you are. Some people, um, some people run right away. Jesus. Anything else in the scaling world? We we didn't talk about VPs. I want I want to talk a little bit about VPs, because uh, I I didn't really believe in VPs, and then I met some VPs. I was like, oh, that's what you guys do. Sometimes we should make a consolidated list of things Paul did not believe in. Oh, so many things. I mean, I, I I'm the kind of person who who learns best from experience, and it <laughs> kind of means I have to fuck up things to. <laughs> To get there, learn best from experience is kind of a nice way of saying like um, <laughs> <laughs> that it w- won't listen to people until I actually fuck it up. Yeah. People can give Paul advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and then when I fuck it up, I'm like, oh, this is like that thing Arn was talking about. I mentioned Arn because he's specifically someone who's given me tons of really valuable advice that I didn't really get until after it was applicable. I think that's not admirable, but I, I think I know. I know for a fact that Paul gives a lot back to the startup community and gives a ton of advice to many different people. Or did you say Paul? Yeah, Paul. Me. Yeah, Paul oh, Bigger. Really? Okay, I do. <laughs> yes. Okay, great. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm spend, wonderful. You you spend like hours at conferences giving advice to people. You know, it's the same advice I give to uh, repeatedly, but to different people. It's not like yeah. I mean, it's, but but I. I a tape recording of Paul could say validate. 
<laughs> like if, if if you replaced me with a tape recording saying validate, I, just on a loop for fifteen minutes, <laughs> that it might actually have the same effect. <laughs> Would this be a PV as a service? Literally, between Collision and Web Summit, I think I might have talked to. 30, 35 different startups in 15 minute increments. And I'd say 90% of them I told validate. I told, Other ones I told. I told uh, people to focus. Oh, really? Okay. Well, there's this, you know, like you already like validate. Like if you're a photo company. Oh, it's company, like, what are you doing at a conference? You should be focusing on no, your No, no, no. Like it was a photo company and they're trying to start in 30 cities. I was like, okay, uh, point of one. I mean, validate is the same, is the same thing. Well, validate, focus by validating or validate by focusing. Yeah. The only other thing I've said maybe is like, don't outsource. Or you need a technical co-founder. Yeah. So the down outsource, I was thinking more about what you said because it's funny. Um, I had an entire job as just being an outsource.com person. Did we talk about outsourcing on the podcast or before the podcast? Um, in the previous podcast, we briefly said don't outsource your startup. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I was a dot com consultant. Oh. So what I did was that. <laughs> yeah. You're like, <laughs> this is the punchline now, much yeah. like. Fitbit. <laughs> So I really remember like there were these Stanford MBAs and they had an idea and they hired uh, the company I worked for to build it. Mm-hmm. That was my job. Oh wow. And, like the whole idea of like iteration or that there might need to be something after we built it. Nope. Oh god, yeah. No, here's an idea, let's let's knock it out. Yeah, you know, yeah. so we would have any it was like a two two month project to build the idea. <sighs> it hurts. It hurts that people lived through all this pain. Yeah, no, I mean I, I can't imagine I, I presume they failed. Oh, everybody failed. Right, right. Well, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess it's kind of unfortunate that the lessons that they probably took from that was that like there were structural problems rather than their own unique individual non-validation problems. Uh, I think that was just the way everybody thought about the world back then. Right, right. I mean, people still think about the world now. It's like like the phrase "I have an idea for a startup." There's so much execution that goes into every startup. It, it almost doesn't matter what idea you have. I, I think it matters that you care deeply about your idea sure, sure, because sure. there's so much. Pain and effort that if you do not care, you yeah. will give up. I meet people who think I want to build a startup, but I don't have an idea, so I can't. And it's like, eh, just talk to people. You'll, you'll get ideas. Like sometimes I'll take out my list of like fifty ideas, and like I'll go through them and see any of these seem interesting. Have you had any takers yet? Um, one or two, but then they they decided not to for various reasons. Yeah. So 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 I started this by saying that you have given back so much to the startup community by helping people with your advice. Mm-hmm. So, but you said people had given you advice that you had to learn the hard way. Like, and one of them was yeah. And I wonder if the people I give advice to whether they actually listen or not. It's hard because when you do a startup, you get so much advice. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody gives you advice. Yeah, you have to listen and filter out what's actually applicable. Right, right, right. right. Like what's applicable for a consumer mobile app is mm-hmm. utterly sometimes not applicable to a company like yours or mine. Right, right, right. Though I mean the, the the lessons are often very good, but you just have to pick the right lessons from it and it's hard to know what they are. Yeah. Yeah. So like the the lesson I think from the Facebook growth team, right? Or Facebook's growth is experiments are like the, the, the quantity of experiments that you do or the, or the, the frequency velocity. The, the velocity, yes, perfect, of experimentation is is your growth rate. And, and I think some people Oh, go ahead. There's a lot of different things that you could pick out of it. Like you could pick like specific implementation or you know things that maybe only apply at 10 million people or only apply to consumer apps or, or that sort of thing. But that, I think that there's good concrete stuff in that. Yeah, and I think sometimes people take the wrong uh, lesson. Like, hey, you email your friends to get them to join your site, right. which is 
totally not appropriate for different companies. Yeah, yeah. The blog post that, that I've intended to write many times is, <laughs> is, is entitled "That Advice Is Not for You." <laughs> so there's a list of. <laughs> oh yeah, no, there's a list of, of startup ideas and there's a list of blog posts and, and uh, things that Paul. Yeah, th- 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 things I will never do, but but like to fantasize that I might do someday. Sounds like a good list. Yeah. But the in in the blog post, one of the blog posts is, is titled "That Advice Is Not for You," and it's it's basically if you look at let's say um, the first round capital site, they have all this amazing advice from teams that like are are killing it, like Stripe and Slack and, and yeah, all that sort of like, thing, right? None of that advice applies to you. It is impossible to separate the advice from the context in which in which it happened. Right, you can take Stripe's advice on something, but Stripe was a runaway success. Slack was was a runaway and overnight success, right? And not the kind of overnight success that took five years to get there, like actual overnight success. And if you take the advice and you're not an overnight success, it's probably not going to apply. Like if you're an amazing successful company, you can make all kinds of fuck-ups. You can reinvent multiple different ways of doing things. And if you're not, if you're going to be a nice 10 or $100 million company and not like a decacorn or whatever those things are, the advice probably doesn't apply to you and you probably shouldn't take it. So, I completely agree. Yay! <laughs> Again. Is this like 25 episodes where we've never disagreed on anything? We disagreed on many things. Have we? Oh, there was the time we talked about Waterfall versus Agile, and you, oh, made, yeah. you made me edit it out later. Yeah, no, that 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 might be the only thing we've disagreed on in uh, 25 episodes. Um, let's see, what else have we disagreed on? Yeah, this is going to be a challenge. There's other things. That, that was a particularly violent disagreement. <laughs> yeah, the, the only definitely violent disagreement. <laughs> well, today I'm to- glad we agreed to take it out. <laughs> you never listened to that episode, huh? No. <laughs> Did it go in? <laughs> no, I don't listen to the episodes. I can't. It hurts. All right. The, the only remaining thing I want to say is we, is we never actually talked about VPs. We ne- Oh, we never did. Okay. Uh, VPs are great because they know what to do. Okay. Done. Well, I, I would disagree. Oh, okay. I think. VPs can know the precisely right thing to do for business that is not your own. Okay, fair, fair. Like they, they, they are the the people who have read all the first round capital posts, or just you know you might you might be really impressed by a VP and then realize later that their their business they came over from was not your own. Right, right, right. right. An example, not a VP, but even a oh god. I worked at this company where we, so we were an enterprise software company. And we hired as our new CEO, and I say we, the board, hired a guy who, honestly, he'd run a sporting goods company. Hmm. Not the same thing. Well, he's one of his first decisions was he's like, why do we have all this money for engineering? Let's outsource everything to India. Because this worked extremely successful if you're making sporting goods, which is a very commoditized good thing. Yep, yep. You know, yep. you know it's like, yes, labor is much cheaper in India than here. Why not outsource making right, footballs right, right, there or whatever? Right. Yeah. Basically killed our company. So software isn't like footballs, is what you're saying? In terms of being able to turn around in six months and build software as quickly, yep. outsource as insource. I don't. Yep. I think there are some companies that are very successful at that, but it's, successful at outsourcing. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to be at a certain stage and have a certain discipline. Right. And you probably don't want to be creating a brand new thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like creating the third of a thing might work. Yeah. Just copy the thing that's that's there. And yeah. then you just need an army of engineers to to do it. Yeah. So I, I think you can hire somebody who has a strategy that they've executed very well at other places, but the strategy might be completely wrong. Right, right, right. 
or there there might be cultural reasons why that strategy worked and and you know your company is different yeah no. or it, it just might like um you might be very good at direct marketing and this might be more of a relationship sale or something that mm-hmm. takes you know yeah, there's, yeah. there's many many reasons why they're right or wrong why a VP could be wrong I think the problem that you get with VPs sometimes is is that they want to Repeat the same playbook that they had before, yeah. and maybe they they aren't experienced enough to see that that their playbook doesn't apply in that situation. Yeah, and that's why you see. I mean, there's a company we both know that where they just keep going through VPs. It's it's a running VPs of sales, VP of marketing. Oh right, right. Um, and it's it's like, hey, what's going on over there? Yeah, I mean, interviewing VPs is, is particularly interesting because you you look for people who kind of think the same way that you do, but at the same time. Have the ability to tell you something new and, and bring in experience that you don't know, and necessarily that those things that you don't know, you can't really evaluate whether they're right or they're wrong. Yeah, right? you can only like try it out, and you you can take your best guess from from the candidacy that you have in front of you and discover that you're totally totally wrong. It's tough because they're you're not hiring an individual contributor then. Right, right, right. You're not well suited to evaluating their work. This reminds me of uh, I think it was Keith Rebois. R- How do you say his name? Uh, that's that's close enough. That it's it's not it's not the French way. I know it's not like Rebois or which is which is what I thought. Um, but to, yeah, I know. I still remember the first time you tried to say my last name. Uh, the Harbord. <laughs> so uh, I, I I hope it was him after after saying his name that, that was right. That a VP is another barrel in a gun. So like individual contributors are are bullets. And at you know, certain points, you know, more bullets is better. But at a certain point, you want to be able to fire with multiple barrels. And another a VP is a, is another barrel. Yeah, I think this goes back to something we've talked about before about why we need managers. Mm-hmm. Right. So the uh, the final thing I want to say about scaling from the first level to the second level of your company is look at OKRs. If you haven't looked at OKRs, goal setting is massively valuable, and I talked a little bit about that. But like OKRs are awesome, and look into if you don't. Use OKRs directly. Look into what OKRs accomplish for you, and and you know find something that accomplishes the same thing. That's good advice. Well, yeah, I guess here's where we trail off um, anticlimactically. Yeah, I hope you. Thanks for. Uh, I haven't. I don't have anything. Thanks for listening to this episode of To Be Continuous, brought to you by Heavybit and hosted by me, Paul Bigger of CircleCI, and Edith Harbaugh of LaunchDarkly. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com. While you're there, check out their library home to great educational talks from other developer company founders and industry leaders.